don't miss the opportunity to get your children plugged in for um, that camp experience. All right. I want to do something this morning. Um, I want to ask you to stand with me. Um, we're going to read uh, a passage of scripture, and um, it's not on the screen today. It's going to come from Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, from uh, Psalm chapter 33. And just out of respect, we're going to honor the word today. I'll be reading from the NIV. If you have an iPad or a smartphone, you want to pull up an app to see it there. Psalm 33, and we'll talk about today, answer the question, where's the church? Where's the church? Psalm 33, verse 1. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Come on, somebody say amen. Isn't that a good thing? By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Amen. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Are you receiving the word of the Lord this morning? We wait in hope for the Lord. Not another politician, not another political ideology. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Turn and tell somebody, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And you can be seated. I want to begin this morning by saying I love America. Um, I'm, I'm a patriotic person. I grew up in Virginia. And um, if you grew up in Virginia, I grew up as an elementary school student thinking that all of American history happened in Virginia. Because you, 
everything you read about, it, it's right down the street. And you, um, you've been there on field trips. I love America. In 1976, the bicentennial year, was a big deal. I played Thomas Jefferson in the county play. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve themselves from the political bands that have connected them to another. Can I get a witness? <laughs> and um, my son, my sons and daughters, one of them is married, they're, they're patriotic. And um, we have lots of flags and some big ones. And when I say I'm a patriot and I love America, that's not a political statement. That's a common sense statement. I would suggest that every person love their nation wherever they are. And Jeremiah chapter 29 says that even when you, the people of God who belong in Israel, when you find yourself in Babylon, Seek the welfare of the city so that you can fare well. And that's not like government handouts. That's so that you can be blessed. And um, so, one of my boys this week, he's been doing this since he was a toddler. We have, I don't know, it's 50 or 60 little flags that you nail in the ground. And out on our road, every year, he does it for Memorial Day, 4th of July, and sometimes on Labor Day. I don't know why, but... He does it. He loves to put those since he was a little boy. And um, he, he waves. And it's interesting, the response, as he's putting them out. Most people honk and talk about how much they love America, too. You know, my dad served in the Marines. And um, I'm thankful, brothers and sisters, what we enjoy, this freedom. It was not free. It cost people. It cost people dearly. My, my oldest daughter's married to a an army veteran, and they're serving right now. And I know firsthand the sacrifices that these, these soldiers make to defend our nation. We are a blessed people. We, um, we should not be ashamed of our nation. I'm, I'm a kingdom citizen first. But I, I love America. And there is a evil indoctrination happening with our, our children. And I believe that we are being attacked from within. And, and they're being educated to hate America. And I would just caution you to use a little more common sense. Nobody from America's dying to get into Mexico. They're all coming from all over the world to get here. God bless America, land that I love. Amen. Stand beside her and guide her. Help us, Lord. And when, when the Bible speaks of blessed is the nation whose God is Lord, what is that? That's to have favor, the favor of God, the protection of God. The blessing, the, the abundance, the peace, the power that comes, the prosperity that comes from the hand of the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 12 says, I do believe, and I want to lay this down unequivocally and say, I believe that there is an external force at work 
strategically trying to destroy our nation. In fact, that external force has found its way into places of influence and great offices with great power within our culture. I believe that. I believe what was once an external force against us is now an internal force. It's like we are destroying ourselves and the tail is wagging the dog. There's still a lot of people who love this nation. There's still a lot of people who stand for Christian values, but it's a small number of people screaming the loudest and sometimes having the most power and they're wagging the dog. And it's time and it's a moment of, of revolution. It's a moment of turnaround. Os Guinness, in his book, A Free People's Suicide, I love Os. We found ourselves in February at a conference where he was speaking. We got on our plane, and it was me, Candace, and three rows, three seats on that row, and right next to us, between us and the wall, was sweet 83-year-old Os Guinness. He wrote the book, A Free People's Suicide. He's written many books. In this one, he talks about the triangle of freedom. And I want you to see, freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And faith requires freedom. That requires virtue. That requires faith. That requires freedom. And that's known as the great triangle of freedom. And I want to talk for a few minutes about these in hopes that we can all be re-educated or educated for the first time. In the spring of 1787, as we talk about freedom requires virtue. In the spring of 1787, before the Constitutional Convention of that summer, Benjamin Franklin wrote a short two-paragraph letter to two friends in France. It had been four years since the end of the revolution, but already, Problems with the government that they had set up were beginning to show themselves. Just four years in, Franklin writes, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. It's a staggering statement, especially from Franklin, who was no traditional Orthodox Christian. He goes on to say, listen, as nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters, people to control them. Freedom requires virtue. Less virtue begets less freedom. You don't have to be a church-going Christian right now to realize defund the police is not a smart idea. If you have lots of virtuous people, people who can be trusted by their morals, have a high standards of belief, spiritual convictions, sure, defund the police. But that's not what we have in our nation anymore. And it, just a quick look on YouTube at what's happening in Portland, in San Francisco, in Chicago. It's idiotic to think that less police control is going to lead to prosperous living. Those places look like war zones. What's happening in San Francisco? Unthinkable. It looks like a third world country and businesses are leaving those districts 
by the dozens. You see, many of the founders were deists. Not all were Christians. A deist is one who believes in the higher power but rejects divine revelation, the Bible. And they look to rationale or human reason to define the higher power and what he or she would require of us. But the founders were moralists. Some of them were deists, some of them, many of them, Bible-believing Christians. Um, someone just clicked on my Google Doc. If you can unclick, would be helpful. Thank you. By faith, you haven't unclicked yet. Um, lost my place one second. You know, it, it, this, is, this, is, this isn't funny. This week, as I was entering some of the stuff I, in, in the buzzwords Bible, Orthodox faith, communism, socialism, Marxism, do you know how many times I got disconnected from Google Docs? There is a force against us. And even now, I don't, I don't know who this is. Hopefully they leave my notes alone so I can keep preaching from here. Just say a word right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, just, we speak life into this place. May your kingdom come, your will be done. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many were deists, some were Christians, many were Christians, but all were moralists. Some were devout Christians, but not all of them. They believed in morality, decency, standards of civil behavior, it was Franklin who wrote in his book, Poor Richard's Almanac, simple, moralistic, pithy sayings like this, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy wise. In 1776, another of the founders, John Adams, who was a committed and theologically orthodox Christian, he wrote in a letter to his cousin, the only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. In 1831, four decades after the Constitution came into being, the French political thinker and historian Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to America on behalf of the French government to examine the prisons and penitentiaries of America. And with a desire to learn about this great new country, Tocqueville marveled at the American people and the democracy they had established that at that time was flourishing over a half century since the revolution. And while the French, on the other hand, had struggled with political upheavals and violence in the decades since their revolution, America was enjoying an unprecedented success. When he returned to France, he wrote the two-volume classic, Democracy in America. And the summation has been quoted by Eisenhower, Reagan, and Clinton. He says, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. He went on to describe, listen, fully that the secret to American freedom was American virtue. 
He didn't mean that American people were inherently good. This was about a nation had created a climate, a culture of shared values, and that behavior was informed by their beliefs. He would go on to say in his writings, liberty cannot be established without morality. So we embrace the idea that freedom and virtue are inextricably linked together and that freedom cannot be sustained without it. We must ask, where does this virtue that sustains freedom, where does this virtue come from? You see, the founding fathers held a common understanding of the idea of virtue and morality divorced from religion and faith was unthinkable. So that brings us to virtue requires faith. As President John Adams wrote to the officers in the Massachusetts militia, look at this. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a well goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You see, Adams, listen, understood that the secret to self-government is that the people themselves must be self-governing, which is to say they must be motivated by something beyond civil law. We ask ourselves today, please listen, brothers and sisters, what makes someone behave virtuously? Why would someone do the right thing? And that can be spiritual in nature. It can be familial relationships that have been modeled with a certain standard of moral behavior. It can be societal and cultural pressures to do the right thing. But what happens when the cultural and societal pressures do not hold any longer to a standard of what is right? what virtue is and what morality is, which is, by the way, where we are today. Our societal and cultural pressures are not supporting biblical values. They're anti-Christ, anti-God, and anti-biblical. We live in a culture that glorifies crime and violence through movies, music, specifically rap music, but not just rap music and video games, normalizing sexual deviancy, coming up with new terms for pedophiles, and they're now called minor, minor attracted persons. What about our founding fathers? They weren't perfect, right? We know that, and this is one of the biggest problems with the younger generation in appreciating America, and I understand it. How could Christian people allow slavery Thank God it was Christians. Will, William Wilberforce on the other side of the pond. Check your history. And it was conservatives, not liberals, that stood against slavery and were willing to fight for the freedom of slavery. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry and a bit shameful that that went on in the origin of our country. But thank God, 
that it no longer is lawful and that not only are the slaves free, but now we are all men created equal, all with the same opportunities. And I know this touches a nerve, but thank God a minority was recently president of our nation. Now you may not like him and you may not stand and support him, but let's celebrate the fact that we have been set free from those bonds of slavery. And let's celebrate even more so that some of our fellow citizens have been set free from that. Can we just give God praise for that? Praise you, Lord. Who told them that we should abolish slavery, help the poor, be good stewards of the environment? These all came from Judeo-Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian values. That's biblical morality. It's the idea that Western values rest on a religious consensus that includes both the Old Testament, Jewish beliefs and faith, and the New Testament, Christian faith and behavioral practices. Tocqueville goes on to say, while the law permits the Americans to do what they please, Religion prevents them from conceiving and forbids them to commit what is rash or unjust. Finally, he said this, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And there could be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature than, listen, than its Influence is powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation of the earth. Okay, we clearly see that the, the founders thought virtue necessary to freedom and religion, faith, relig necessary to virtue. So what allowed religion itself then to thrive as it did in those early days, the early years of founding of our nation? Faith requires freedom. Let's talk about that. Tocqueville wrote, in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. America in the 21st century, brothers and sisters, has embraced the worldview of the French Enlightenment, which viewed religion as something that caused bondage, unable to fathom a world in which religion and freedom could be, can be mutually supportive. We live in a land where, as of now, we still have religious freedom, religious liberty. And I don't have time to drill down and talk about the difference from all the other civilizations and while we have those freedoms, we didn't make it a law that you have to be a Christian. For if we did, we know from Constantine that we would have no real faith at all if we made it a law. But in our freedom, we have grown lukewarm as a nation, if not cold. And we have taken our freedoms for granted. And our prosperity because of the blessing of the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That prosperity has spoiled us. And we are in an hour where some of our freedoms 
Some of our liberties, not will be, but are being taken from us. Many of us, in this hour, I can post some things on social media and you'll like it. I can post some other things and you're afraid to like it because you can lose your job. You could get doxxed. You could get traced. You could get penalized. You could suffer economically. But I want to say, as long as we still have religious freedom, as long as we still have religious liberty, and we do as of this morning, let us use it to reclaim God's purpose and mandate on our lives, on his kingdom, and on our nation. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, they didn't really have religious freedom, but they had religious freedom. We may reach an hour and it, we kind of are there. We don't have religious freedom anymore. We have religious freedom. Book of Acts, Holy Spirit empowered. You locked me up, the church was earnestly praying, Acts chapter 12, for Peter who was in prison. Next thing they knew, they heard a knock on the door. Rhoda opened the door and she said, oh, there was Peter. She shut the door in his face and went back in. You're not gonna believe, Peter's still at the door knocking. Could we have faith like that? That when we begin to lose or see that maybe they're taking our worldly freedoms, that we still have a spiritual freedom to be the people, do you understand what I'm talking about? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom is gonna require, religious uh, values are gonna require that kind of freedom. Now, right now, and I wanna move in, please listen for the next five, 10 minutes. We are battling in our culture right now, social Marxism, socialism, a form of communism, state control. We are battling it right now. In the mid 19th century, mid 1800s, many people don't know this, that Karl Marx and Charles Spurgeon were in the same city at the same time. Charles Spurgeon burst upon the scene in London in 1853 at 20 years old. He was appointed pastor at the New Park Street Chapel in South Central London. And soon after that, listen, his earnest, passionate messages were attracting massive crowds requiring multiple services, which nobody had ever heard of at that time. They moved him into three services and then they moved him to the largest gathering space in all of London at the time the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And the London Times newspaper says this, fancy a congregation consisting of 10,000 souls streaming into the hall, mounting the galleries, filling the balconies. Mr. Spurgeon ascended to his tribune to the hum and rush of the crowd. Trampling of men succeeded by a low concentrated thrill and murmur of devotion which seemed to run at once like an electric current through the breast of everyone present. And by this magnetic chain, the preacher held us fastbound for about two hours. It is not my purpose to give a summary of his discourse. It is enough to say of his voice that its power and volume was sufficient 
to reach everyone in that vast assembly of 10,000 people with no PA system. Of his language, it is neither high-flown nor homely. Of his style, that it is at times familiar and at times declamatory or impassioned, but always happy and often eloquent. The London Times says, of his doctrine, neither the Calvinist nor Baptist appeared in the forefront of the battle, which is waged by Mr. Spurgeon with relentless animosity and with gospel weapons against irreligious hypocrisy, pride, and those secret bosom sins that so easily beset a man. And to sum it all up in a word, it is enough to say to the man himself that he impresses you with a perfect conviction of his sincerity. Spurgeon and Marx in the same city at the same time, living in London, no indication that they ever met each other, but we know that they had to know of each other because each was famous in his own lifetime. Please listen. Marx's message of secular salvation, which that what, that's what communism or socialism is, a perfect utopia where everybody has what they need without Jesus. Marx's message of secular salvation, socialism, a utopia for all, gained prominence after the public publication of Das Kapital, Marx's book. We know that Spurgeon was aware of it. And listen, there was a certain professional politeness in his sermons where he preaches against socialism, but doesn't name individuals. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Listen, one of Marx's colleagues, Frederick Engels, expressed frustration that their revolution, Marxism, wasn't coming and taking root in London. It was in other cities and nations, places in the world. And he was asked, why isn't it taking root in London? In a letter he said, the reason is one word, Spurgeon. He said, we're trying to reach the urban poor with our message. And unfortunately, this guy, this preacher Spurgeon is out there preaching the gospel. Are y'all out there? There is, he's preaching that there is peace, joy, meaning in this life. And the next, in the person of Jesus Christ, there was this thought that if we could get this guy out of our way, our message would take off. Thank God that they couldn't get the preacher out of the way should encourage all of us. I said it should encourage all of us. You say, Pastor Chuck, politics, you wouldn't be the first person in the last three years accusing, accusing me of being too political or being political. As if what's happening in our world should make preachers and spiritual leaders and Christians stay out of it. As long as they're progressing with their ideology and they're taking over our culture, and they're coming in and telling us bold face that they're coming for our children. You can rest assured this preacher is gonna be a firewall preacher. And I'm, I pray that, I pray that you'll be a firewall believer. We clap. 
And it's easy to clap right now. But how many of us mean it? Can you believe? Have you seen the parades? It's now not even men dressed as women. It's old men in their underwear dancing in the streets with families, children there. It's Sodom and Gomorrah is what it is. Frederick Engel says, if it wasn't for Spurgeon, London would have been socialistic. You see, man sees his life like a pie chart. And many Christians think there's one slice of the pie called politics. And you stay out of there. Abraham Kuyper, please listen to me, especially younger generation. Because the, the, the indoctrination is so powerfully manipulative and deceptive. They've got you believing a different gospel. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and statesman, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry. That's mine. Spurgeon preached against socialism because he saw it for what it was. Listen closely. Socialism is atheism masquerading as a political philosophy. Spurgeon warned of communists in 1855 who wanted nothing less than his words, the real disruption of all society as it is presently established. This is what we're battling. In a sermon on Psalm 18 in June of 1878, Spurgeon said, German rationalism, which has ripened into socialism, may yet pollute the mass of mankind and lead them to overturn the foundations of society. I say not that it will be so, but I should not wonder if it came to pass because deadly principles are abroad and certain ministers are spreading them. You think Spurgeon knew what socialism was? Look here at this. During one of the pandemics or what, what he says here, fear to die? Thank God, I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it may not, but if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. You should pray that God raises up a million Charles Spurgeons in this hour. I say this humbly and not, I, I don't want to get in a, one of those talking about that preacher. But we are in a day, I could name the names of men and women. Many well-known pastors and preachers have embraced a woke theology that looks and sounds like the gospel, but it is not. It is the exact op opposite of the gospel. It's a gospel of justice. It's a gospel of works. Spurgeon, like Francis Schaeffer, who came a century later, laid the blame at the people of his own profession, spiritual leaders, pastors. You see, Marx, listen closely, Marx understood how some people who called themselves Christians 
could confuse the authentic for the false, and he, ex- he sought to exploit it. This is what's happening with millennials. He said, Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism or Christian self-discipline, legalism, nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. In other words, we can enter into the church, hijack the doctrine, and teach socialism that looks like a better, more compassionate version of the Christian faith. Marx knew. He knew how easy it would be for influential spiritual leaders to be pressured into silence or a new version of biblical faith that was not in the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it was a social gospel, a gospel of justice. And the list of well-known High-profile spiritual leaders today who have bought into this without even know it, knowing it. It's not a short list. Spurgeon said from his pulpit before a crowd of 10,000 people, great schemes of socialism have been tried and found lacking. But let us look to regeneration by the Son of God, and we shall not look in vain. That was Spurgeon saying, Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life. Spurgeon, Spurgeon and others like him, listen, I'm coming in for a landing. Spurgeon and others like him, there were others preaching the gospel in that time. He was the most well-known, and it is very likely and believed. Um, Eric Metaxas says this in his book, If You Can Keep It. It is very likely and believed that their fervent preaching, their engagement of the culture, their fierceness to engage with courage, with resolve, and their hope in Jesus Christ, they together, those preachers, prevented violent revolution in Britain. What happened in France? The French Revolution, I don't have time to get into it, but they basically were looking at America going... They're brand new. People revolted. The, those in charge wanted to lead. And there was a revolution, 1789. The reign of terror happened. Historians tell you that happened there because there was no comparable gospel preaching in France. There was only a dead Catholic church at the time. God help us. We have all these churches. Many of them filled, coming out of this COVID season. And the big name pastors are afraid to, to preach on the tough stuff. Afraid to take a stand. Because the fear, it could empty out half of their crowd. The pressure for a social gospel. And if you only knew, in Central and South America, if you only knew the, the rat poison of 97% doctrinally sound, but it's the 3% that will kill you. And if you're here today, I didn't do this in first service, but I have Jesus Christ, Paul said, I only boasted one thing. Jesus, him crucified. 
We can talk socialism, America, politics. At the end of the day, it's Jesus. He loves you. You're here today and you kind of go to church and you like church and it's kind of conservative. You raise that way or, or whatever brought you here. If you don't have a real and vibrant relationship with Jesus, you are so missing out. And he's not, if you get to heaven one day and you don't know him, he's not going to be ambivalent and go, try to tell you. I believe God, if you get to heaven and you never gave your life to Jesus, I can see him with tears in his eyes going, I tried and a million ways every day to show my love to you. God forbid that you could ever be in a gospel preaching church and sit here for weeks or months or years and never surrender your life to Christ and experience the joy of knowing the Lord. Good. He is so good. And you go, I, always, I, I don't want to just, I don't want to just give a history lesson, but I do want to give a history lesson because, but not just a history lesson. Mark Twain's the one who said, and you've heard me say this many times. One thing we've learned from history is that we haven't learned anything from history. And all the smart people go, yeah, but it didn't work for Stalin because they didn't do it right. And it's like, we just, we need to give it one more try. Socialism, communism. And at the minimum, we know in the 20th century, communism killed 150 million people. Please don't try it again. It's not going to work. And so you go, Pastor Chuck, when that force is coming in on us, and it is, it's almost like somebody got in charge of our nation and wants to destroy it. It's not almost like that. It's exactly like that. So what do we do? We do what Abraham did. Catch this. God goes, I've heard the cry. What's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? I love those people. God wasn't making an object lesson out of those people. They were created in his image too, but it's just gross sin. And he said to Abraham, who was his friend, and that's what God does when he has friends, people who partner with him, ambassadors. He said, Abraham, I'm getting ready to destroy. The cries come up from Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham goes, God, uh-uh, you can't do that. How about if I find 50 righteous people? Will you spare Sodom? And God goes, I mean, read it in Genesis 18. He goes, all right. If you find 50, I'll spare them. And Abraham, you got to love him. He goes, how about if I get 45? Thinking it might not be 50. And God goes, all right, 45. And he, all right, what about 40? You know, whatever he goes all the way down to. And God goes, all right, if you can find them. And apparently, he couldn't find them. We live in Sodom. What's the, you can distill two or three powerful lessons from that story. But the one is this. Can God find a righteous remnant 
Is there anybody in the wicked place that still believes the God of the Bible? Answers prayer. Is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask, think, or imagine. And I'm going I'm to I'm park right here a second. Everybody look at me. I'm not going to just come in for this close and you get a little Novocaine and ease the pain and you go on out. You need to ask yourself in this hour, can God really do the exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask, think, or imagine? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. According to the power that is at work in you, the Bible says. So that's our first thing. We got, we got to step in. I wonder if God were to look for a church, a righteous remnant church. Restoration Church is going to be one of those churches that he goes... And, you know, what we did, another principle we distill is this. As the church goes, the community goes. Ezekiel 9, I don't have time to, but God's like, in the end times, let's find the people who are hypocrites. Go to the church first and find out which ones. Let's start there first. May God not find that at restoration. And then... I want to leave you with this. Let this sink in. Marinate on this for a few days. In Matthew chapter 11, the Bible says that Jesus told Capernaum, he said, verses 23 through 25, he said this, Capernaum, if I had done the same miracles I did here, if I'd done them in Sodom, Sodom would still be here. Sodom would still remain. So what's the lesson? Let the signs and wonders return to the church. Let the miracles begin to flow. Are y'all out there? How many of you believe we're still worshiping a God of miracles, of power, of signs and wonders? Come on, let the blind receive sight. Let the dead be raised to new life. Let the broken bodies be made whole. Come on, stand and give him praise in this place. Come on, give him praise. Father God, send your kingdom in the name of Jesus. We praise you, Lord. We praise you. Would you just say it with me? We declare an open heaven. We declare a season of miracles, healings, deliverance, salvation, undeniable miracles in the name of Jesus and for his glory hallelujah in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus brothers and sisters I gotta I gotta tap on the gas before you leave we don't look for miracles signs and wonders just to have some goosebumps spiritual goosebumps but people need miracles. In the first service, the people that called us at the end of the service, there are people here, you, there's probably people here who need a miracle. And our world needs to see a church where miracles are not the surprise, but the common every Sunday occurrence in the name of Jesus. And I just wanna speak over you. If you've never seen miracles or never been around a ministry, a group of people who 
experience miracles. I just want to right now just speak a fresh anointing over you in this next season of your life that you're going to become a charismatic, spirit-filled, New Testament, book of Acts, expecting miracles kind of Christian in the name of Jesus. And into this atmosphere, miracles that glorify Jesus, that build up the church, that are signs to an unsaved world that the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, let it happen, let it happen. Would you take somebody, I'm, I'm going to give you two minutes to do this. Don't visit. But I, you've got two minutes to pray a prayer that you are guaranteed God will hear it and answer it. And it has to be for America. I want you to find one person. You come into agreement. And I want you for two minutes. Right now, just find somebody. And I want you to pray for America. Whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to pray. Go ahead and pray right now. Let faith arise. Let faith arise. In the mighty name of Jesus. We pray for leaders, for pastors, educators. We pray for political leaders, business leaders. We pray for the media, kingdom of God, invade. Will of God be done. Send revival, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Make us a last day's church, Lord, full of life, full of faith, full of hope. In the name of Jesus, multicultural, God-loving people blended from all over the world, different languages, in the name of Jesus, different backgrounds, kingdom of God come. God bless America. God bless America, in the name of Jesus. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Believe it, pray and believe and you will receive in the name of Jesus. We intercede on behalf of D.C., Capitol Hill, the Beltway, Congress, Senate, state governors, police officers, sheriffs, deputies, state troopers, public high school teachers, middle school teachers, private school teachers. We pray for the family in America. Protect the family, strengthen the family, that we would raise sons and daughters that love you, Lord, that honor you. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Come on. second hold up just a second you all Moses isn't coming Daniel isn't coming Jonah isn't coming it's up to you and me and the Holy Spirit in us I just want to ask you a second you all in the upper balcony are y'all ready in the center balcony y'all up there are y'all ready over here Holy Spirit up there. 
I want everybody here in the, in the whole sanctuary, main floor, upper balcony, just say, here I am, Lord, send me. Come on. And all the earth will shout. Hearts will cry. Come on. as our kids go off to camp this week. We pray for Pastor Cindy, her entire team. Let the fire of your spirit fall upon our children. Seal them at young ages. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. May they learn how to hear your voice. We pray, Father, for an encounter with you that marks them for the rest of their life, Lord. In the name of Jesus, as many of us in this room as adults, Remember those moments in our childhood that shaped us. Give our sons and daughters those moments this summer in Jesus' name. And we pray, Father, for this season, we will be a church that stands in the gap, a righteous remnant in this hour, loving people, worshiping Jesus, consumed with a zeal for your house, O Lord and your presence and your glory in the name of Jesus. And we agree, here we are, send us. The devil is a liar. You have forgiven us, equipped us, called us, and you're going to use us in this hour, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, 
in the marketplace in the name of Jesus somebody this week the Holy Spirit would say you're gonna learn to hear my voice I'm gonna begin to reveal myself as you hear me when I speak you I've called you before but you missed me and you paid a price but I'm coming again to establish intimate relationship with you don't be afraid of what I'm going to share with you embrace it because I'm embracing you with my love with my destiny over your life this morning there are people this week you're going to learn to hear the voice of the Lord have words of knowledge for people you're going to learn to be led by the Spirit you're going to see miracles answers to your prayers in the name of Jesus we won't be a church that's jealous of what you're doing the churches in South Africa hearing what you're doing around the world there'll be people around our nation hearing what you're doing through this church in this community through this group of people and we thank you for it Lord let your kingdom come your will be done in Jesus name we pray may the Lord truly bless you keep you make his face shine upon you be gracious unto you lift his countenance upon you and give you peace come on everybody say it amen I receive it in Jesus name in Jesus name bless you all have a great week